This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. My name is Margaret Chesney, and I direct the UCSF Osher Center. And I want to talk with you about uh, outsmarting stress and enhancing resilience and how you can actually optimize health, which is a different paradigm, too. Uh, as we start to think about having a healthy population, a lot of what we were talking about earlier with Dr. Barris's talk was looking at treatment, where there are problems. And he also mentioned prevention. What we're actually also, there's some science to show that there are ways to actually enhance your resilience and optimize health that is coming from a whole kind of new body of research. Um, so what I'm going to do is try to make the case here with a number of points and do this relatively quickly. <laughs> One, I'm going to highlight that there are pathways by which positive emotions influence our health and well-being, and that these positive emotions are not the inverse of negative emotions, which is what people used to think. It was like you heard Dr. Barrows discuss depression, for example, and maybe is positive emotion the opposite of being depressed? And I'll talk about that because we were very surprised to see that they're not necessarily opposites. They occur in parallel. Um, can then, if this, if this is something that might be valuable for us, is there a way to actually increase it or maintain it? You know, can you get people to be more positive and have health effects that can be sustained over time? So could learning this actually become a treatment? And then I will close with tools you can use. You've already had some mindfulness meditation, and I'll give you some other tools that kind of package that and add some other elements to it. So that's what we're going to do real quickly. So what there, I'm going to make this case that there are pathways by which positive emotions influence our health. To go into this area, as my colleague Susan Folkman and I did some years ago, we were stunned to find so little evidence of this that most of uh, psychology and medicine have focused on the negative aspects of negative emotions and how they uh, affect our health. So I'm going to quickly go through some of that science, and then we'll come back and walk through the, the evidence for positive. This is, it's interesting that the very earliest part of medicine evolved um, in this search for eliminating disease from the individual. That was the early form of medicine. And the earliest attempts were to repel spirits or shamans with rituals. And then there was the idea of let's have elixirs and potions that would be the alchemists would put together to get rid of these, these evil spirits expelling this negativity that was there. And even Hippocrates talked about the four humors the, that many diseases were thought to result from negative emotions. And um, Hippocrates was actually right. And he, he thought that these might be somehow associated with imbalances between the four humors and bodily fluids. And you can flash from Hippocrates right to San Francisco to the 1970s <laughs> when uh, Friedman and Rosamond at the Harold Brun Institute, which is still there, the awning right there in the old Hellman building at Mount Zion, it says Harold Brun Institute, when I actually first met Ray Rosamond, I walked through. I'm now at Mount Zion, but I walked through that awning. And I'll never forget that day. I was uh, young. I just finished my degree. And um, I had bought 
Type A Behavior in Your Heart, the book that they wrote at, you know, when you sometimes go by bookstores and they have a table out, any book for a dollar? <laughs> and I bought this book. I was so poor. But I bought my own original copy of that book. You know, and I, at that time, I thought anybody who'd written a book was probably dead. <laughs> so when I was fortunate enough, I came out to the West Coast and I came to Stanford, and I was working on job stress and heart disease, the first study I was involved with. And they said they're going to go up and meet Ray Roseman. And I, you know, I was, what? You know, he's, he's here? And we actually went and met him. And I remember, I can remember, the, the uh, what do you wear <laughs> to meet somebody really famous? It was just an incredible experience. He turned out to be the nicest man. I ended up working with him for about 10 years. Um, but we were studying anger and hostility and how does a negative mood somehow get into the heart? And it was intriguing. You know, what was it about this, this coronary-prone behavior pattern? And so that led in the 70s and 80s to an incredible focus on stress and negative affect and, and how that affects our health. And, you, you know, it's, it's just constantly in the, you know, in, uh, I think, in our media, and you see it everywhere. There have now been these incredible studies that have been done that just years of documentation that stress and particularly anger um, are coronary prone and have adverse effects on our health. They're one of the biggest studies that was actually led by someone who wasn't so convinced about this was a huge study worldwide. You know, now that we can, you know, with computers and technology. And this study, they looked at 52 countries, including the United States, and they looked at people who'd had MIs versus controls, and they were just trying to see around the world what are the risk factors? And they, they included in their study psychosocial stress, and they had questions about stress at work, stress at home, financial stress, and life events. They found out that if people reported these stressors, they had increased, that was four times, you know, the, those four factors were so dominant in the group that had heart disease. And I'll show you some of the evidence on this. What was interesting is hyperlipidemia worldwide was the number one risk factor. But then the number two, ahead of hypertension, ahead of all, many of the others you would expect, was this psychosocial element. And that really stunned people that it's actually worldwide. So just I'm going to hit on some of the data. They, if people reported they had work stress, and this is India, China, all over the world, they would have, you know, aggregating everyone together, people who said they reported that several times a day. Uh, those people had 1.3 relative risk, so it's, you know, it's increased relative risk of being in the heart group versus the controls. Men, it was a little higher than women, but the 1.38 is men and women combined. People who reported that they feel that they're permanently under stress, those individuals, it was doubling the risk, um, a little bit higher for males. And I can't break all this down. We'll never get through. But if you have any questions about any slides, uh, check with um, Mary, who's left the room for a moment, or you can just go to the Osher Center and you can click on that, ask a question, it will get to Mary, who was wearing the pink sweater, and we'll get the answer to you. Uh, general stress in general, you know, people reported they just had either work or home combined. Again, relative risk increased. If they, people said it was permanent, doubles your risk worldwide, and they were adjusting for other risk factors. What about a study on women? We knew that heart disease was a risk factor for men, and all of the Western Collaborative Group study that Rosamond and Friedman did here in the Bay Area 
They only studied men. So it was important to come along and say, well, is this an issue for women? And this is a study of the Stockholm um, Female Coronary Risk Project. They looked at women who had already had either an acute MI or unstable angina, and then they followed them to see if they would have a recurrence for uh, 4.8 years. And they had women that were married or uh, living with someone, versus, and they had women who were working outside the home were involved. They found that marital stress for women increased risk threefold. In Stockholm, this is in Sweden, uh, work stress for women, and we'll t- um, you know th- this is kind of interesting because work stress actually doesn't carry as much of a heart disease risk, but some of that may be due to the fact that when women if it's that stressful, sometimes women have an option to opt out or work part-time. Uh, but marital stress, uh, at least for women in Sweden, really, really had a significant impact on women's lives. And the problem, too, is that when women have a heart attack and come home, they often go right back into their, their women's roles uh, that they've had all along so that um, women's rehabilitation is, is an area where we really need to focus. So I'm going to move through quickly. Stress isn't always bad. There is eustress. And this is, you know, what is it? Sometimes, you know, when you, you watching the Academy Awards, which I love to do, because, you know, why wouldn't you want to see people be having the happiest moment of their entire lives? Uh, no one ever has a heart attack from that. Why is that? <laughs> this is because you perceive the stress. It's exciting. But it doesn't exceed your ability to cope. The definition of stress that we kind of think about as negative is when there's more challenge more conflict, more challenge to your system than a person can cope with. And um, it's, it's bad stress is when you really perceive a threat. It's exceeding your resources to cope. And what we're seeing right now are people who get a pink sl- This This is a major not positive stressor for most people. It exceeds their ability. There's a tremendous amount of anxiety. Layoffs, this is what's happening. Here is another one that was very potent for all of us over a week ago. For all, you saw people incredibly under stress, including the physicians. I knew physicians who, uh, I just met with them last week, who were at um, Beth Israel, who are you know, at Mass General at Boston. They were there. And it, was, it exceeded their ability. They did their jobs, but then someone had to come along afterwards and really help them because it was especially the people that were in that tent uh, because they were there you know, helping people with blisters, and then suddenly you know, it was just more. Uh, though they're tremendously resilient human beings, but that was used stress, and it impacted all of us because it exceeded our ability. We couldn't understand it. So stress actually then tends to go right into and lead to negative affect, and these definitions are in your notes. You know what anger and depression are, and you can read about those. What I want to go to is a lot of our research early on was how does this get into the body? What, what are the mechanisms by which it leads to disease outcomes? Because if we can understand that, the idea is we could do more to address it. So I'm just going to some fun studies. The really interesting study was the religious order study of anger and disease. And in this study, they had 851 clergy, average age 75, and they looked at them. Many of them actually engaged in suppressed anger because, you know, you can't be a a priest and you usually don't scream at people, you know. And, um, but they found that people who had suppressed anger and depression, uh, these were associated with increased death rates over the four years of follow-up that was independent of other risk factors, even a group that's you know, certainly trained in a lot of coping strategies. 
Um, Women's uh, Health Initiative, many of you knew about that. Um, that study had uh, over 107,000 women in it, and they were going to be followed. They are now continually being followed, but the initial time, time period was 11 years. So we put in measures early on uh, to assess things like anger, depression, and so forth. So you could just look to see whether or not those were associated over time with more illness. And women who scored higher in anger and hostility had 63 deaths per 10,000 in the first, this first phase of the study in the first 10 years compared to those who were least hostile. We also put in a measure on optimism because I was really interested in that. Was I was on the committee that was able to pick the measures. And so later I'll tell you about what happens to the optimists. But the pessimists aren't doing so well. Um, so it, how, how does this happen? But again, it's like how does it get in there? Three pathways I'm going to highlight. One is physiological, the other is maladaptive behavior, and the other has to do with sort of social settings and environments. This is why this became such a difficult area to study, because negative emotions get people react to those and do all kinds of things at once. So it's very hard to kind of isolate just one because of what you'll see now, that people are reactive. So one thing we've looked at are what are the physiological responses? How does it affect the body? And it turns out anger, particularly um, anger, uh, but depression as well, affect so many systems in the body for males and for females. The nervous system, it affects breathing. Uh, asthma is, you know, there's an association. If you've ever had patients with asthma or you know someone in your family with asthma, stress can trigger asthma attacks. It's really pretty obvious. Um, you know, it affects the heart. It affects the endocrine systems. And all of this is, you know, we were talking about mind-body. It's all happening at once. Uh, and so it affects the immune system. And I'll, I'll just highlight a little bit of that because it's intriguing. Uh, one of our colleagues, uh, Tamarkin and Richie Davidson, who's at Wisconsin, have done these studies. When we had the, the, with fMRI, we now can go in and look at the brain. You can begin to go in, and it's no longer that black box, but we can see what's happening when people get angry. And I've done studies where we asked people to relate when they got angry, and we did this down at Stanford. We looked at what happened to their hearts. We actually did one study. We had people talk about an event that made them angry that was still unresolved. If an event's resolved, it's like telling a story because you kind of go through it, but you know it has a happy ending. So we had things that were really unresolved, and we did that while they were going through stress testing. And we'll never be able to do the study again because having people talk about an anger incident caused left ventricular hypertrophy and such adverse effects, you can't really then do another experiment with it. Because you were challenged, you know that it's going to increase risk for people, so we, were, we weren't able to replicate it. You just can't take that chance. What Richie found was that negative and positive states are associated with activity in the prefrontal brain, and the negative um, states are on the right side. And the right side, if you have people talk about things that made them angry, their right frontal lobes will you know, kind of glow. And then he looked, and he's, he's, so it's right-sided activation is for negative states. And then he could look, and actually then they grouped people who were showing this right-sided activation and did some tests on their immune system. And they have lower levels of natural killer cell activity. They have um, greater decreases in NK activity during a natural um, 
stress of an exam, so you see net, you know, it's really impacting the immune system. They then show people a positive film, and people who have this kind of negative state, they don't show the same response to a positive film as people who have the, the more positive activation, which is on the left side. So and then they gave people vaccines, and they showed the people who had this right-sided activation, they don't even respond as much to vaccines. So it's affecting the immune system. Uh, we now have studies done here at UCSF by Alyssa Eppel and uh, Elizabeth Blackburn that showed that stress was affecting telomeres. Uh, and they did this in a study of people who were caregivers. And you see that stress also lowers telomerase. We would do more of these studies, but it's kind of expensive to do some of the measures. But it does look a hint, exercise, particularly if it's sustained over a long period of time, you know, but done daily, say, or three or four times a week, but done over a longer period of time, may actually help the telomeres, may actually somehow counter this. So there you have a body-to-mind thing that Dr. Barrows mentioned about exercise and depression. Well, it also seems to perhaps, perhaps have effects on telomeres. So we, and what is the pathway? There have been a lot of studies now. I won't bore you with that. But it looks like the one clear pathway is, of course, affecting breathing is pretty important. But another is it affects the HPA axis and cortisol. And you'll see in some of my slides I'll mention cortisol. This is what makes studying this hard. People who have a lot of negative affect do a lot of maladaptive health behaviors. They are more likely to be um, users of heavy alcohol. They're sedentary. Uh, they have lower adherence to care. Depression is always a predictor of non-adherence to care in all of our studies from HIV to hypertension. So that's a real problem when you're trying to study these, that people are responding to those affect at the same time. Because each of these behaviors affect heart disease, so does the negative affect. So it makes it a challenge. Just touch on one other area, social isolation. This is kind of unfortunate, but people who um, are depressed and angry tend to be more socially isolated. Uh, and there was a study, there's a Whitehall study. These are the civil service workers in London who work in the, you know, the British government. And they, they're really, there are a lot of studies on Whitehall um, participants. And this one, they, these, they had 110 uh, women and 188 healthy men in this study of Whitehall. And they, they looked at how socially, at their questions, so like how many friends do you have? Do you feel you have someone you can talk to? And they looked at those people who were socially isolated, and they had basically higher waking cortisol and greater cortisol output throughout the day that they were able to directly measure. And recall I just said it was perhaps that HPA axis and elevated cortisol, which may be the pathway. So cortisol is important. This was really interesting because there was also another study that highlighted something about socially isolated people that was done by Redford Williams and his colleagues at Duke. They showed that socially isolated men and women who had coronary artery disease were, had a threefold likely in, um, risk of a recurrent MI if they were socially isolated, if they didn't have a significant other. And they did control for whether or not somebody was present when there was a recurrent MI, that sort of thing. But if, if people are isolated, it seems to really increase the risk of heart, you know, a recurrent heart event. So it, it's, we are, I think we're not designed, you know, we didn't evolve to be isolated. And that's a good, you know, it's a good thing because that's something we can do something about. Okay, that's where everybody was focusing 
In the 1970s, especially after Rosamond and Friedman had come up with coronary prone behavior, which was this, in which the, the nugget that we found, the most important thing of coronary prone behavior, the work that I did with Dr. Rosamond, highlighted competitive hostility. That um, that seems to be a really um, coronary prone element, as as is depression, as is depression. Part of some of these people who are so competitive and hostile that what they're doing is they're they um, they're almost like in a manic defense against being depressed, and they're just really really out there, just keep going and going and going. And underneath all of that, sometimes is a lot of is a kind of a quiet depression that some of you may have seen if you're practicing clinicians. But let's now look at the glowing left frontal hemisphere to understand what's going on with positive emotions. Very tough to study. There aren't measures. There's all these depression scales, interviews, but not that much for positives. Uh, And the interest here is we'll look at what's the impact of positive emotion on health. What do we know? And what can we do about it? Is positive affect associated with longevity? You know, certainly I did the religious order study. Well, this is the nun study, uh, just for fun. You know, there's a lot. I'll show you. There's lots of evidence. But this is one of the first studies that actually caught people's attention. They studied a uh, group. Uh, Danner studied 180 Catholic nuns, and these nuns had written autobiographies way back when they were 22 years of age, and now they are actually now they're in their 90s. But at the time he was studying them, they were between 75 and 95. And he went back and looked at their emotional content, what they wrote um, when they were only 22. And one said, for example, I was born on September 26, 1909, the eldest of seven children, five girls, and so forth. My candidate year was spent in the mother house teaching chemistry. With God's grace, I intend to do my very best for our order. For this, okay, So he read that biography. And then here's another biography. God started my life off well by bestowing upon me a grace of inestimable value. The past year, which I um, spent as a candidate studying in Notre Dame College, has been a very happy one. Now I look forward with eager joy to receiving the holy habit of Our Lady in the life. So very different. Two girls writing at age 22, very different stories. And then he looked to see, and he rated them as sort of how much positive affect was in the story. And he found that people who had this positive affect had a, um, that this was really protective for mortality, that it, they actually, six decades later, they'd written those stories when they were 22, and that, so they had stories on nuns that had passed away versus nuns that were still alive, and they found that it predicted mortality if they had that positive affect so much earlier. And Danner simply said, of finding such a strong association of written positive emotion, that expression to longevity is something we should study. And others started studying it as well. Remember that Women's Health Initiative and that optimism scale that we tucked in at the beginning of that study, not knowing if it was going to mean anything? We found that the optimists, in, and this is in the first 10 years of the following the Women's Health Initiative, and there's going to be now a 15 and 20, but they had 46 deaths per 10,000, the pessimists 64 deaths per 10,000 using an optimism scale. Pretty striking. What's going on? Um, uh, One of my colleagues, Andrew Steptoe, 
in the, he does the Whitehall studies. He wasn't so sure about this. He was interested in that social isolation. Remember, the people who were socially isolated had the cortisol that was going up. So he had a great graduate student. He said, let's look across the, all the studies that have anything about positive affect. And Dr. Steptoe was really not so sure about this. But he said, let's take a look. So they did. They did a meta-analysis of these 35 studies, and lo and behold, the hazard ratio that it turns out it is, they found that it was protective, significantly protective across these studies, but the measures of positive affect are not as established as the ones for depression, but it was really somewhat intriguing. And I remember getting an email from Andy Stepto, and he said, you know, he emailed me because this is something I've been interested in and said, you know, you've got to see our preprint. And he sent it to me in advance, and then we got together and talked more about it. So, okay. What's happening? How does this get into the body? What's going on? Um, what's the impact on stress? So, you know, we, we started by talking about stress. And I um, wanted, if you've, how many of you have gotten a cold after flying on an airplane? Some of you raised your hands, and that's how they, they have this thing called airborne, which has got a lot of vitamin C and things like that in it. It is possible because people are in an enclosed space, they don't circulate the air well, and so it's very easy to either get it directly from people that are there, but also people are visiting the restrooms and touching. There's a lot of germs on airplanes. They don't clean them that well. Um, so you'll notice, if you ever talk to flight attendants, they were the first people to be carrying hand sanitizer. <laughs> I noticed, I said, what are you doing? And they said, oh, and they said this is hand sanitizer. Now it's everywhere. So... Uh, I had a colleague, Sheldon Cohen, who studied stress and colds. And he showed that these, um, he actually studied these people and put them in a hotel. And in this hotel, they studied them and they wanted to see whether or not people who had, very, everybody has background stress. Like some of us have less stress, some of us have moderate stress. Remember the people who said they had the permanent stress and they were not doing so well? So he puts all these people in a hotel and they actually drop rhinovirus down their nose. <laughs> and then they're going to stay there, and they actually count the Kleenexes, they look and they see who gets sick, and this is what they did. And, oh and it was amazing. And um, did you know, all very, very carefully controlled what, what was happening. And Sheldon wrote a great paper published in Science that showed that the people who had stress were more likely to catch the cold. And then after Andrew Steptoe writes this paper and we start talking about this positive stuff, uh, Sheldon goes back and, you know, he looks through his questionnaires and he has some items in there that would pick up positive affect. So he then reanalyzes his data and bingo, he shows that positive emotional style was associated in a dose response pattern to lowering the risk of developing cold after viral challenge. Wahoo, <laughs> you go, Sheldon. Really exciting for him. Another colleague who writes and goes, you know, these people are sort of surprised. Is I don't think he was expecting it. Um, and then, so he did that study, and someone else said, well, let's just take faculty. Why not? And they scored people on positive affect, and they just followed them to see how many colds they got during the year. And that's a good, you know, that would be a nice pre-doctoral, post-doctoral study. And uh, they found that there was a significant association in that people had fewer colds. 
what's happening. So now we've got physiological effects. We know it's affecting the immune system. Richie Davidson has been now doing his fMRIs on people whose the left side glows. They re- their immune systems respond to positive films. I, I now only go to positive films. You know, it's just, if I'm going to pay nine ninety five, well, I'm actually senior now, so it's like less. <laughs> um, I want to. I, I want my immune system boosted. I would advise, do not go to No Country for Old Men or whatever it was. Bad. My husband said, oh, it's got to be good. It won an Academy Award. (laughs) Not good. Jaws, hmm, I don't know. I'm not so sure it's good to go through all that stress and then have something good at the end. I I want positive throughout, you know. So I like things like, well, finding, what is it, Finding Nemo or whatever. That one, that's a little sad, you know. But it comes out good in the end. Anyway, what about health behaviors besides going to positive films? Uh, positive affect people. People with higher positive affect, unfortunately, are also likely, this is why it's hard to study this, they're more likely to be engaging in physical activity. They have reduced levels of smoking. If they quit, they stay off more. They um, have reduced alcohol intake. They have healthier diets. So these things are all clustering. Uh, but as, an inter- as a clinician or a family member, you can start encouraging that. But that, this makes it challenging. What about social support? Now, the people that need social support were the isolated people. Unfortunately, that's not how it goes. It turns out that people who report more positive emotions are more likely to receive social support. And that positive affect people are more likely to be able to, they are associated with a higher number of people who provided help. It's like we help the positive people. Uh, and so, you know, I, one of my life, is, you know, my life is to go and find those people that are isolated and have needs and, and try to bring it to them. But what happens naturally is, you know, when people see people that are, you know, in the store, you know that person's always angry and frustrated and in a depressed mood. You, know, you, you quickly go down the freezer aisle, you know. And, <laughs> And you shouldn't do that. You should go and say, how are you today? Oh, I'm terrible. I should see what happened. By the look, it's a beautiful day. Aren't we lucky to live here? Oh, the cost of living is so high. (laughs) (laughs) Work on it. We can do it. We can do it. So that gets me, you know, we know that now this is, I can tell you this real quickly. Susan Folkman and I were really stunned by this because what we, that positive emotions are not the inverse of negative emotions. And what we found was that under chronic stress, it was very expected that many individuals will report high levels of negative affect, and we were actually studying bereavement. But what was unexpected is that people, even in the most stressful times, can have some positive affect during those times, that these can co-occur. Um, and in our study that Susan Falkman and I were doing, it's a Susan study, and I was the clinician in that study, they were looking at caregivers of someone who we knew would pass away. This is early on in the AIDS epidemic, and what we found was that people who were caregivers but could also have some positive affect, they became bereaved when their partner died, but their recovery was significantly faster. And so this, people who had positive affect and also had, uh, we actually talked to them a little bit about the meaning in their lives or spirituality. You know, if people who had that, that anchoring in their lives were much more able to have, um, you know, to recover from bereavement. I was actually, and I've experienced this, I was walking along the Visadero right across from the cancer center. I'd just seen somebody there who was very, very ill, and I was feeling kind of heavy. And, you know, it's just a little down. It was hard. And all, it was right after Halloween or, you know, a few days later, and all of a sudden this little girl is coming toward me, and she's Minnie Mouse. 
A little Minnie Mouse. It's a little Minnie Mouse. And she's got the little red and white polka dotted skirt, and it's all fluffy out. And she's got her ears and her parents. And she obviously, it was her Halloween costume. And, you know, little kids, they like their Halloween costume. They want to wear it more. And I just had to kind of, it was so cute. And even as I think of it, I could still see the little, all of a sudden this Minnie Mouse is coming toward me. That it was great. And I went right there. Or flowers or the sunset. You know, we can do both. You know, it didn't erase what I was having. I could just hold both of those, you know, flowers in my hand and put them together. I have a bouquet, you know, and it's just, I can do that. You, you experience these things. And you actually saw that happening in this recent tragedy that we had with Boston, the stories of heroism and how that made you feel good. And the fact that, you know, all those people who helped right away and, and sort of how you can hear people even talking about that, that yes, they feel anger, but at the same time, you'll hear people actually just watch the news. It, it just, it's all there for us, those two co-occurring. So then the question becomes, becomes, can we increase these states? What can we do? Can they be increased and maintained? That becomes the challenge, and that's something we're focusing on in the Osher Center. So I want to take a look at that. This mindfulness-based stress reduction or the mindfulness that you experienced um, in the lecture previously and which you can have a sample of by going over and we've got some, you know, some workshops, you can, uh, there's going to be some mindfulness there. There's also going to be some yoga. Both of those actually kind of capture some positives. Um, but this mindfulness-based stress reduction, we know, they mostly people have studied, does it reduce depression? And it does appear to do that. But now they've started going back and looking at the data and saying, oh, but it also seems to improve positive affect. There are a number of other strategies that are being studied to see, focusing on stress management, to see can we boost positive affect, can we teach people to cope. And I want to tell you quickly about coping effectiveness training, which is one of those strategies that we developed here at UCSF and is now being used with breast cancer patients, spinal cord patients, in various places around the country and around the world. And this is something that was developed here at UCSF. And the idea is that, you know, we have a lot of stresses in our lives. And in coping effectiveness, you, you, if you've ever felt like, boy, I'm feeling really under pressure, What's, what are the things that are really getting to me? And coping effectiveness training encourages people to then say, okay, what about this can I do something about? This is like the serenity prayer. What's changeable? What's going on that's changeable that I can fix? I got that IRS letter. Ooh, have you ever noticed they come on Fridays? <laughs> um, but that's a ch- it, you, you're going to deal with it. You know, whatever it is, you should deal with it. You can't meditate your way through that one. Okay. But there are other things. Like when we were studying, Susan Folkman and I were studying people with HIV AIDS. Once you have an HIV diagnosis, you have an HIV diagnosis. Um, some of us are aging. You know, that's... That's some of us are aging. Some of us. Some, we are all aging. You can't do much about that. Might as well celebrate. You know, hey, you know, you can. You've got a choice. Um, so, but it's, some things are unchangeable, especially if something has happened. Like that's unchangeable. I don't want to do too much on the Boston thing, but when people notice how people who have lost a limb, you know, they're, you can ha- hear them talking about what they're already beginning to make plans. And what they're going to do, you know, that they are actually 
that has both unchangeable aspects and changeable aspects because of medicine. And so, but there are some things we can't, you know, like things that have occurred in our lives when it's, you know, tragedy, you can't go back and undo that. So there's coping strategies for each of these. For if you can change something, let's train people to be really good problem solvers. Give them communication skills. Harvard negotiating skills is what we taught people with HIV. We taught them how to negotiate with their insurance companies. We gave them the skills of how to talk to people to say, you know, I have HIV, and to really feel okay about that. Those are skills that you can teach people that can reduce the changeable stressors in their lives for things that, are, and many things kind of shift and go between these two worlds. But then we also, for pe- things that were unchangeable, we taught meditation that some of you just experienced, imagery, physical activity, and other strategies to enhance well-being. And that becomes, you know, can we, can we teach this positive affect that then goes up and can soften those stressors and teach skills? And so I'm going to teach you, and they're in your notes, some, I'm going to, we've boiled down what we taught people into breathe. As, an, um, as a way of kind of remembering using each of those um, letters to trigger something in, in your notes. I'm going to walk you through the strategies. And then I use this term to remind myself. One, the B, breathe. Breathe. Take a breath. That's one of the best things you can do for stress. And many of you have done that. You go, wait a minute. I'm gonna go, you can go to the restroom you know, to sit there quietly for a second Take a few breaths just as you experienced this morning. Kind of become quiet inside. I talked to a surgeon just a uh, day before yesterday. He talked to me. He studied meditation. He said when he's doing surgery, he wants to be quiet inside and bring all of his energy to what he's doing. Every movement. Be quiet inside so he can focus. I love that picture. I want to be quiet inside. And so breathe. Take a br- breath. Breathe. Get present. Be present. So many of us aren't present. We're thinking about what we have to do next. Um, there's going to be a break. You can go to the bathroom. <laughs> be present just a little bit longer here. <laughs> R. This is an incredibly important thing for many of us to do, and that is to set realistic goals. That, and when I first, if I have not got realistic goals for my day and I try to meditate, my mind keeps going right back to what I need to do and makes this list. And go, no, I come back to my breath. So it really helps to be more realistic. And be realistic. What can you do this morning? You're going to take some things. You're going to learn some things. That is an incredible goal for the day. And if we become more realistic, what can you do this hour, this day, this week? You don't get to the end of the day and go, oh, which a lot of us academics do. We do a post-mortem at the end of the day, and we say, oh, I didn't get anything done. It's terrible, terrible. What did I do? It's a terrible way to go to bed. You know, and so, you know, what you want to do, and I'll close with that, is you, you'll do much better if you say, I want to make sure I get to, done today these two things. If I do anything else, it's a good day. So, but you've got to work on this, and we train people to do that. And I, we can send you some guides on that. So you've got to really be more realistic and then celebrate. Get to the brushing your teeth at the end of the day and go, wait a minute, I did those two things. Good for me. I'm good. You know, hey, yes, oh, good, you know, and celebrate that. This is really important. Everyday events. Notice the positive, the Minnie Mouse is coming towards you. You know, think about your, you know, that is, eventually the, this fog layer will blow off and we'll have a 
phenomenal weekend. So you have to notice that. So notice everyday events, the sunset, the flowers. And we've done studies that show if you tell someone else about those events and you share it with someone, that that actually can improve your positive aspects or your positive affect. Um, Sometimes you have to notice when things go right. And we often don't do that. Remember I mentioned the IRS thing? You do, and so I'm going to teach you a skill for positive affect. And that is most of the time when you get your mail, you go, nothing from the IRS. Yes! It's a great day! It's a great day! Don't miss it. Um, colds. We talked about colds. No one seems to have a really bad cold in here. And you know when you have a really bad cold, you go, I cannot wait until I can breathe again. You know, you're going to sleep and you sleep on one side, and then you have to, like, excuse this is going to be bad on the tape. Oh, no. But then, you know how you go on this, and then that one clears, and then you decide, all right, I'll take some of those medicines I know aren't so good, you know, or squirt. No, no. So it's, you know, but now we should all be going, we don't have colds. This is a great day. Okay, why the tire? This is important in my life. I am not so good at changing tires, especially now because I used to, you know, I'm old and I, you know, there was the thing you get out and you click it onto the, the bumper and there was actually even a little hole, we say in Hawaii, a puka, and you put the, you know, chikunk, chikunk, you know, and you can do it. You know, what is this? You, you, you know, you can't find a manual. You, you have to use your iPhone to figure out what parts go where. This is not good. So I'm not so good at that. I joined AAA. Yes. <laughs> um, but, you know, most of the time when you go out to your car, if you're me, you go to your car and think of the numbers of times a day. I can go, it's a great day. My tires are inflated. You know, this is great. So remember me. Remember this day. This day. When you go to your car, look at your tires. Remember me. It's a great day. Except every once in a while, it does happen. It does. So, but anyway, most of the time, it's pretty good these days. Um, don't know what they've done about the tires. But anyway, that's another lecture. Uh, that would be engineering, I think. Um, breathe. A, acts of kindness. Breathing, realistic goals, everyday events. Acts of kindness. Create positive events for others. It's so easy. It's just so easy. In the grocery store, you've got, you know, somebody's got toddlers. They've got tons of huggies and stuff in their basket. You have time. Let them in. Let them in. And I do that. And they say, but you've only got seven things. And, and I said, no, no, I've got time. You go ahead. You know, cause the, and then the kids are reaching for the candy, and there's a scene. And it's just, you know, your heart just goes out because most of us have been there. And then the, the, the woman, the checker, goes, good Samaritan on aisle three. <laughs> That's not why you do it. But this is a good thing. Or just telling someone that they've got a really great, you know, scarf on or a tie. Or, that is great. You look great today. So good. Uh, remember Voltaire said flowers leave fragrance in the hand that bestows them so it's good for you uh, turn negative events around reframing an event when, when you do something wrong you learn from that you won't make that mistake ever again so those lessons, those life lessons that's what gives us wisdom and so those are good things uh, finding the silver lining um, it's sometimes really tough but I, you know, and this is a whole other lecture of how to find that reframing what's happened. Just like when you reframe an old picture and you, you take it to somebody who knows what they're doing and then all of a sudden your picture kind of pops out. So you can reframe. Michael J. Fox 
has reframed the fact that he got Parkinson, has now raised, I think it's close to $30 million, but he's raised so much more than that, awareness. He's changed all of us. We can talk about it now. He's been on the Hill talking to Congress. He has made this a special thing for all of us, and we think of him, and we're so honored to you know, to know of him and how brave he's been. The H in breathe, humor. Humor is great. Crack jokes. You know, um, I was trying on whatever Tuesday night to get back from Detroit. And so, you know, why not spend the night in Houston? I mean, hello. I was part of the group that was sort of not doing so well with the sequestration. And I found myself in Houston to call my colleagues and say, I know you guys are expecting me back Tuesday evening. Well, I am now in Houston. It's like I wrote my husband. I just tried to crack a joke. I said, you know, we have, Houston, we have a problem. <laughs> I'm here. <laughs> I'm not there. You have to find dinner yourself. I'm sorry. And then when I landed, hey, what's the line to use? The eagle has landed. Why not? You know? So... Um, the E, the E and breathe. End each day with gratitude. Instead of that to-do list that we didn't get done, end each day, you know, really feeling gratitude of the things you've done. Note the positive steps and all that you're thankful for. One is being alive. Is being alive. Um, do positive accounting at the end of the day, which is not what we're all trained to do. That We all do negative accounting. But I'm going to encourage you that as you're drifting, you know, just think about the positives of the day. Um, keep a gratitude diary. There are studies now that show that you were just, this is a new area of science, but studies that show that that works. I'm going to show you that this does work. I'm going to go back to that coping effectiveness training really quick. We had a scale called the personal growth scale. I mean, there are not... MMPI scales for positive. It's amazing. You go into mental health, it, there was nothing about the, you know, how to enhance people's positive. It's just not part of psychiatry, but it is now. And so I love these items. I learned to be myself and not try to be what others want me to be. I learned to find more meaning in life. We used that scale, and then we did an intervention to see could we enhance this scale as well as reduce depression. So we did this big study. People got two forms of coping effectiveness training versus uh, just a minimal contact control because everybody in the study was HIV positive and they were all depressed. So we wanted to stay in touch. We ended up combining the two coping groups. We did significantly increase coping skills by teaching those two things, how to change things, communication, negotiation, meditation, activities. We did that. That was good. We enhanced positive states of mind, significantly changed it. Look what happened to the group that we just called and stayed in touch with. And we then crossed them over, and they all got a workshop on this. Because, but they were getting worse. Um, personal growth, the scale I just showed you, negative change in the controls. They were losing ground positive changes in the people that are coping. Then the question was, is it maintained? When we treat people for depression we, and stress management, we can get people's depression to go down, but when you, and that usually happens from months zero to three, because these programs tend to be about three months long, and then they go back to baseline. By a year later, a lot of the people are depressed again, and we gotta work on that. I'd never seen anything like this where you got an effect by increasing coping skills and positives, and it really sustained um, positive states of mind. We think it's partly because of the social feedback people are getting. 
they're changing how they interact with one another and people are giving them that more support that's maybe they're changing we, we just it's we have to learn more and we're analyzing these data now to figure out why was it so sustained you know there's nothing happening for you know essentially the last six months we just had them fill out some questionnaires and it's it's holding so, so this is really exciting so this was my case I wanted you to understand that there are pathways by which positive affect can influence health and well-being. Positive affect is not the opposite of negative affect. There's something happening there. And now we can have in the fMRI begin to sort out what's going on. There are new studies coming out of Wisconsin where they can show changes in the brain as people have learned both to meditate or have these kind of stress management strategies. So yes, we can affect this. You can take someone who wasn't as positive and you can move them along the continuum with some training. And I've given you tools that you can use, B-R-E-A-T-H-E. So at the Osher Center, what I want to say that we, what we bring to UCSF, and it's really embedded in UCSF culture, is that a lot of interventions that we do in medicine move people from being sick to health. And that's good. That gets people neutral, but that's not enough. What some of us want to do, and what we see with positive interventions, is that we're able to begin to move people into a zone where they have reduced vulnerability. Remember the study with the dropping of this, the, the cold virus? The people with positive affect didn't, showed less susceptibility. So, and there's new studies that are all going on, going right now, showing you know, changes in the immune function. We, we know that if we get people to exercise, we can get more telomere length. So we want to reduce vulnerability to daily stress and do that with mindfulness-based stress reduction, which you can learn at the Osher Center. Uh, coping effectiveness training, stress management can move people beyond the neutral into the positive. So the question is, should we broaden our agenda to, in medicine and health to include and embrace health and wellness? And I think we'd all agree, yes, we should do that. And at the UCSF Osher Center, what we're doing is we want to integrate the most n effective strategies to enhance people's ability to age with vitality, outsmart stressors, which now you know how to do with breathe, increase your positive affect, and you can do these things. Um, the goal of integrative medicine is to set a goal that's beyond returning people to a disease-free life to getting people to really feel well and ready and resilient. So we want to encourage people's personal growth and this enhanced resilience. And really also work with people to encourage them to actively participate in uh, making choices that will basically build their resilience like learning meditation, learning yoga. There's studies that we're just doing now that suggest that that also occurs. Prevent illness, optimize their health, and in the end, improve the quality of their lives. Thank you so much. So does anyone have questions or comments, observations? Yes, sir. There's a consortium of academic health centers for integrative medicine throughout the country. And um, you can just go cons Google Consortium Integrative Medicine, and it will show all of the 55 uh, current centers. We meet twice a year, 
And now we're having a conference. It used to be every three years. Now it's every two years. UCSF is very involved in this consortium because we were one of the first original eight. There's tremendous sharing that's going on right now among those. That you know, that's that's the goal. The goal of this field is this consortium is to really, in a way make the most of, I, I don't like to say change medicine, but enhance medicine and, and move medicine. We're actually beginning to think about wanting to call ourselves the integrative health that we want, or health care, because we really want to emphasize medicine and health. So there'll be a meeting in 2014. The, progr- the scientific program director of that meeting, you've met Kevin Barrows. He directs our clinical program. Uh, Rick Hecht here at UCSF who has the research program at the Osher Center, is the scientific program chair for this meeting in 2014 in Miami. Those meetings uh, began with, you know, about 50 people. The meeting we had in Portland in 2012 had over 1,000. 300 of those came from other countries. Uh, There's an international group that isn't as big. And so that international group, we've now called our meeting in Miami is international. And so we're expecting that that meeting will draw about 500 people from throughout the world. And we'll go way over 1,000 people. And that's all being managed. The engine behind that is this consortium of integrative um, or academic health centers. So it's exciting. It's an, exci- it's an exciting time. And many of you are UCSF alumni, and if there was ever a campus that was embracing this, treating the whole patient and all of that, many of you had that when you were in, in your training, uh, you know, a lot of it started here, which is exciting. But, it's, but it, it's bubbling up because of public interest. The public wants this. Who's the next head of that consortium? Uh, Evan, Gavin, I, works with me. I'm the, um, the incoming chair for the consortium. Uh, I will take uh, that position in January. I'm now the vice chair. It's, it's, it's a labor of love, you know. And Shelley Adler, who is at UCSF, she's the director of our educational program. She is actually the co-chair of all the education because they're changing curriculum all over the country now to bring on courses in integrative medicine, both required courses. And, like, I just went to Northwestern. They have one they, they've embedded some integrative medicine in their major classes, and they have one elective. UCSF has 28 hours in the regular curriculum and then this list of um, electives. So we actually have more hours than others, but what we're doing is sharing our curriculum. And it's all interprofessional now because integrative medicine is about team care that you have. And who do you think should really head up that team? Who makes the decisions about his or her own health? the patient. We work for that patient, and we work as a team. And it's so great because as working with people like Rick, Shelley, and Kevin, I don't need to know everything. I just need to, you know, I, I do the, you know, I can do the things I do well. And also on that team are acupuncturists, massage therapists, manual medicine specialists. Then you bring in the virologist if you need it. All of this is done with conventional medicine. One of the things, the Osher Center, we sometimes see patients who have have tumors that need to be treated, but somehow it didn't get picked up by anyone else. But because we're here, you know, if we discover their back pain is something that, you know, might benefit from yoga, strengthening muscles, maybe seeing our manual medicine expert, 
But sometimes, and there was a case where a person actually had a tumor on her spine. That no, and they had her her physicians had sent her to the Osher Center saying, you know, there's nothing we can do. You're just going to have to deal with this pain. And sent her to see Kevin Barrows, the fellow who was standing here just an hour ago. Kevin, talking to her for about an hour, hearing her story. He said, you know, I ha-, and she said, I'm so tired. I don't want to have any more scans. I don't want anybody to do that. I'm ready to just say I have to live my life this way. And he said, you know, I need to talk to you about something. I want you to go back and do one more. We need to do a little bit more imaging. He said, I think there might be something there that we need to take care of. He sent her back to neurology. She had a tumor on her spine, and she's now so- helping support us and telling her story because that is integrative medicine. It's not either or. It's just offering the best. Other questions? Uh, she's asking, really, what, what's my view of what's going to be happening in the field? Will there be more res- uh, research? There was a period. It, it, it's, these things are funding of um, medicine is, is right now political football. And so there was a period where anything that dealt with social um, s- stress, psychology, there was less funding. And then there was more funding during, when the, the NIH doubled under Clinton. That gave a bolus of funding. And that was also when the National Center for Complementary and Alternative Medicine was organized. I actually feel right now that this has enough roots that this area of integrative medicine is taking hold. And it's funded some by philanthropy. Uh, overall funding for any research, including this research, is going to be dampened because of our financial crisis. And I'm encouraging people to do very fine, smaller studies because we all know that some of the best discoveries can be made with very few people. You can do big randomized trials, or you can be very smart, and we can do it with less funds for now. But yes, I feel this field, looking at what's happened to the consortium, to go from eight to 55, and literally, you know, we, I can tell you the other six. I know two are going to join, another four are in the works. To join the consortium, you have to get a letter from the dean. So it can't just be some people interested in this. You have to get the buy-in from a dean or vice dean. We're lying, vice deans. So it's, this is big. The other thing that we're seeing nationally is that the other institutes are funding this. When Kevin was talking about fish oil studies, for example, some of those are being funded by the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute. The National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute and the National Institute on Aging are also funding these kinds of integrative medicine studies now. Uh, so it's, it's beginning to, you know, it's no longer alternative. We don't use that term anymore. That's why we like the term integrative because it's just off, you know, studying uh, really not just complementary approaches, but actually also embracing all of those other things. Remember, um, Dr. Barrows called them the funda- f- foundational health practices, and he talked about sleep, nutrition, exercise, stress management, and I would just add to that resilience training, which is what we need to do. So I'm going to thank you all and tell you here's the plan. Actually. You have the plan, a plan has changed. The plan has changed. So first, okay. Dr. Chesney, thank you so much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.